The kayakers were, were too sharp dressed looking. You need to make some gray sweatpants for everybody. <laughs> Did you see my paddling sweatpants, Grace? It'll be like your old wrestling days. Oh, that's just like them. Yeah, you could go like grab some kids' balls or whatever you guys used to do. <laughs> like I don't grind your, your face into someone's taint. <laughs> well, well, have you seen the uh, the binging suits that the, the BDP boys make? The who? <laughs> the, the BDP boys. BDP boys? <laughs> I'm not down with that tribe or posse. you are like like Griff and Eric Johnson and Griff sews these suits they're like baggy uni suits sewed out of with like a big front slit and like some sort of like animal fur like dick flap and yeah. uh have you seen those <laughs> they're, sure they're all the race around Head River welcome <laughs> welcome to Hammer Factor number 22 <laughs> I hey just, Grace, I can't. Your your camera isn't live, by we, the way. We went we went ahead and gave you a little taste there of uh, <laughs> what you can see on the hammer or what happens on the hammer factor before we start recording. So <laughs> anyway, that's going on the show, guys. <laughs> so beat. Wait, okay, so we're gonna do that. So who's 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 the BDP crew? What's BDP stand for? Balls Deep uh, Productions. Balls Deep Productions. <laughs> oh, Balls Deep. Okay, all right. I'm sorry. I guess I did know BDP. Should I be concerned about them as a uh, up and coming gear? concern uh, i mean i feel like the the union suits have really come into their own man engine yeah. suits yeah i've seen those <laughs> they, they started we saw those the old schools remember these boofware remember boofware from colorado yeah one piece fleece suits and then a way stylier and then there was a guy in buena vista making these pajama like one piece suits super baggy there are listeners hanging BDP. up on us right now. So yeah, All right. yeah, yeah. So whatever suits of the ticket. Welcome to Hammer Factor Twenty Two. My name is John Grace. On the line we have North Fork Champion, Policy Council for the Outdoor Alliance, and Poker Superstar Lewis Geltman. Welcome back from Washington D.C. Thanks, Grace. Good to be home. Back here amongst real Americans. Yes, indeed. And then also on the line, we have Whitewater Legend, <coughs> co-owner of Immersion Research and all-around nice guy, John Weld. What's up, buddy? Yes. <laughs> uh, not much. I'm doing great. You I know, just, once again, people could hear the, the 20 minutes before the show starts. It was pretty ribald this, this time around. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, not recording for the missing a few days. So I got to tell you guys, we got some death threats for not coming through on our weekly podcast. Not actual death threats, but definitely I'm getting personal texts on my phone. People are coming through. There was like there was like a mime of somebody like with a needle up against their arm being like, where's my hammer? You're going to have like a horse head in your bed tomorrow. (laughs) As long as that all stays directed at John Grace, I'm honored. Uh, (laughs) New policy here at the Hammer Factor. Direct your calls and questions to Lewis Geltman. Lewis Geltman. (laughs) Don't do that to me. (laughs) We're going to do the month of Lewis. Um, Lewis, what was going on in D.C.? How was Mitch McConnell? You guys there? 
Yep. Yeah. I don't know what just happened there, but every time I ever say something about Mitch McConnell, my thing freezes up. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, were you yeah, ready? Yeah, you dude. They're dude, listening. Seriously, we were just talking about this before we came on. Something's going on here. Right. And anyway, you were in D.C. And, you know, full disclosure here, I, have, I just think Mitch is an interesting guy. Like, just... When I see him on television, I don't know what it is. It's just like he's the most interesting. So you saw him. I saw him. Um, yeah, he were walked you, by. Were you totally starstruck? Starstruck's the wrong word. <laughs> <laughs> Filled with loathing. I just think his character, his like, he can't be like that guy all the time. He's got to like put on a different character, don't you think? I, he is perplexing. I'll give you that. Yeah, you can't say anything about this, Lewis. So, anyway, how was your <laughs> how was your trip in DC? Tell me what you were doing. What's going on? Uh, tell me about it. It was good. Um, outdoor Industry Association, who is the trade group representing the outdoor industry, uh, great partners of ours, do good work on public land stuff, and then also they have a whole big trade agenda. Um, they have their annual gathering in DC. It's called their capital summit and they have, I don't know, like a hundred some executives from outdoor industry brands, like the kind of companies you'd see at outdoor retailer in town lobbying on like trade and public land stuff. And they had some trade, like when you say trade, what do you mean by trade? Um, like, uh, it's like so far over my head. I just, I know nothing about it, but things like the, uh, border adjustment tax and like that's what, I, that's what I thought. That's that's interesting. Which they're obviously against. I think so. I it, they I, would have again, to. Be. I know so little about it, but they would have to be. The border adjustment tax is going to be basically a huge penalty for retailers and manufacturers alike in our industry. Should I explain the border adjustment tax in a nutshell? Um, I mean, I'd be interested. I don't know if anybody else is. What do you think, Grace? Yeah, yeah. Let, uh, let's hear. Let's explain that, and then let's explain exactly what lobbying is. But go, go with the tax first, Will. The tax? Yeah. Okay. Uh, basically, Republicans, uh, Donald Trump, they've sort of produced a wish list of of uh, of things that, of, of tax cuts they want to make, and basically, who who said it? Is they said it was. Uh, it was new, it was like a, a Christmas Christmas wish list for Newt Gingrich when he was twelve. It was just a bunch of things. And no, there's no, you know, there, I think Lewis, there's no clear way how they're going to pay for all this stuff, right? Um, Again, I'm like, I just, I do no work on the trade stuff right. at so all, Trump, and I so, have no to, understanding. I mean, to to clarify even further, Trump produced a budget which presidents do, and uh, you know, and Trump's not the only one who, who, who produces a very ambitious budget that gets you know, immediately ratified and adjusted and completely changed around by Congress. And, um, you know, every president does that. So Trump's <clears throat> budget, you know, like the rest of them, is sort of an outlaw of who wants to accomplish. It's, it's very expensive. One of the ways that Republicans have been uh, suggesting a way to fix this that sort of goes in line with Trump's nationalist agenda is something called a border adjustment tax, which means that um, it's really quite complicated. It has to do with some economic theory, but the long and short of it is, is that, uh, companies like IR, um, we could not, you know, if, if we bought things from overseas, um, normally, you know, the cost of those products, when we sell them, we can take them off our income. Um, it's like an expense, you know, the cost of goods sold from, a from, from a dry suit we buy from overseas, 
um, comes off of our of our taxable income, right? Um, uh, under border adjustment tax, we'd not be able to do that. Uh, things we made overseas would be would be uh, we'd have to pay we'd have to declare we wouldn't be able to take those off our income. So if if we sold let's say if we sold a thousand dollars worth of dry suits in the United States last year um, and it cost us five hundred dollars to buy those suits. The way it works now is that uh, we made $1,000. We take $500 off of the cost of goods sold, so our profit was $500, right? Um, under this this arrangement, the cost of goods sold would not come off. So, you know, we'd pay tax on the full $1,000. Um, the, uh, the flip side of that is that any garments that we sold to overseas, to, like to England, for instance, which we do a lot of business, we would not have to pay um any tax on those, there'd be no tax on those. Um, so it'd be the other way around, encouraging us to export, you know, things and 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 try and buy things from in, inside this country. Um, the immediate result, you know, and this would incre- increase our tax liability enormously. You, you know, we pay. I did the math really quick in the back of a, a, a piece of paper one day, but we we'd be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars more a year in taxes, which we simply cannot afford. Um, I think the the way it would resolve itself would be that we would have to do something really drastic, like sell direct, um, to not have our prices of dry suits and things or overseas go to like eighteen or nineteen hundred dollars for a dry suit, or seven or eight hundred dollars for a dry top. Um, economists say that the way that this would resolve itself would be that the price of the dollar would the dollar would get stronger against the the currencies that we're trading with, so we would end up paying uh, less for the garments we buy overseas. But that's a theoretical concern. I know what's going to happen with our factory that we deal with, and I think every other factory that our that uh, our industry deals with at least is that we pay if we pay two hundred fifty dollars for three hundred dollars for a dry suit or whatever we pay for a dry suit right now, they're not going to care what the border adjustment tax is. We're going to pay exactly the same amount, um, and then we're going to have a, a huge liability in our hands. Um, it would be. Manufacturers would have to scramble to become as efficient as possible, which would mean probably moving to a direct sales model of some sort. Um, otherwise, you know, the price of our stuff would double, um, or very close to double. It's 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 a it's 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 uh, it'd be a very 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 crazy situation for sure. With with a lot of manufacturers panicked about what's happening to the cost of their products, um, and it seems crazy to me that. I mean, it seems like getting something, you know, when you're purchasing something that you're then going to resell, I mean, it's hard for me to understand how that would, could not be considered a business expense. You know, it's like, it's hard. Yeah. To, you have to read, like, you have to read into the theory of it. You know, the theory of it is, is that it's pushing the tax on to the consumer country, you know? And so, uh, is it, you, that's kind of the, the theoretical idea behind it, sort of an academic argument, um, but the immediate practice of it is is that if you make stuff overseas, you're going to get you're going to or if you if you manufacture stuff overseas, you're going to get punished right away. You know, with the hope that the dollar is going to you know the currency adjustment is going to help pay for that later on. But that's unclear, and no one's going to wait it around. It seems like, time. and like if that happened, like if the dollar got really strong, wouldn't it just make it that much harder to export things? Right. You're now you're getting into more. That's a good point. You're getting into more of the theoretical aspect of e- economics. We should probably have someone. If there's a listener out there who's an e- economist who who understands, <clears throat> you know, this at a deeper level, let me know. But I, I can I, I'm certain that the outdoor industry was is fighting this tooth and nail. It looks like, for right now, the board adjustment tax is taken off the table. Um, 
but it would produce billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars of revenue if they were to do it, uh, and it worked according to the plan. In the short, to their plan. Well, over the you know, if they kept doing it, it continued to produce revenue. But doesn't that open like the can of worms to other countries to do the same thing, and it just start getting into like the trade war kind of thing, or am I just yeah? yeah, I mean, it's the border adjustment tax is different than a tariff. You know, it's not like we're we're slapping a tariff on a class of goods. You know, um, so it's it, it has a different effect than that. Um, at this point, I, I would probably defer to economists to to explain that the difference between those two things different. You know, more thoroughly. But maybe we should get OIA's trade guy to come on and explain it. That yeah, would be that, great. That'd be that'd be actually because, really good insight. You know, the thing is, is this is a real thing. This is not kookiness, and and there's many many Republicans who are talking about doing this. This is a serious thing on the table, um, and if it happens, it's going to have a it's going to have a big effect on out the price of outdoor gear. Hmm. You know, interesting. Um, so, anyway, so there was some lobby. lobby. There was some lobbying <laughs> going on, and you hear this term thrown around all the time so what 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 exactly were you doing that was the lobby so we'd have a group and the groups are kind of broken down by either like subject matter like some people were just working on their trade agenda or on public land stuff but for me it was me and about half a dozen folks from the pacific northwest uh somebody who works in government relations for rei someone who runs hydro flask is like a water bottle manufacturer and bend some folks from uh, uh the mazamas mountaineering club one of our members who's uh based in portland and we would just kind of go in and visit with lawmakers or their staff from around the pacific northwest and talk about you know the issues that are important for keeping these outdoor recreation businesses healthy or protecting public lands or whatever and so you just go in there and you say hey like this is you know, we have this new outdoor recreation report or outdoor recreation economy report out from OIA. Let us like walk you through this, explain why, you know, our industry is important, why you need to be kind of looking out for us. Here are some things that we're worried about, like the border adjustment tax or keeping public lands public and just kind of, you know, sharing what the concerns of our community are. Um, it's like pretty fun, you know, people are pretty interested to hear from us. I mean, it's, we're definitely a more fun group, I think, than like people going into lobby and like healthcare or something like that. Um, Are you like slipping them a bingey under the table and stuff, or no, nothing like that? <laughs> um, but you know, it's like it's a good point. It's like I think that sort of like the idea of lobbying gets gets kind of vilified, or lobbyists get vilified, and it's to me, it's like you know, even Exxon Mobil, it's like there's nothing intrinsically wrong with someone, you know, a business that works in a highly regulated space, having someone who's a professional and could go in and explain, you know, the impacts of these like pretty technical pieces of legislation to their business or to their community or whatever. It's like where it gets shady is when it's coupled with this like horrific system of campaign finance we have. And all of a sudden these lawmakers see that they're sort of you know, financial ability to participate in elections is contingent on doing what these people want. Like to me, that's the problem. It's not the idea that somebody goes in and and lobbies for their interests or their community's interests. And it's honestly, it's something that's like, there's a lot of opportunities out there for anyone to do it. Like if that's something that you're really interested in doing, you know, you can go to DC and, you know, maybe schedule a meeting and just go chat with your member of Congress. It's like, 
it's that simple. And if you're, you know, involved in an organization like American Whitewater Outdoor Alliance and you're, you know, volunteering and working on things like Grace, if you ever wanted to like come to DC and, you know, talk about forest planting and then inhale a guy or something like that, like we could help you schedule some meetings and go in and talk about that stuff. It's cool. Doesn't, oh. I'm not sure they'd know what to think of me, but I'd give it a go. Man, they would, you know, it's like, seriously, it's like, it's, uh, you know, when you go in and you're a normal person and you're representing, you know, things that other, you know, there's other people who share your interests. And if you're able to say, Hey, you know, like I organize this race every year that, you know, a couple hundred people show up at, I organize events all over the Southeast. Like I'm a leader in my community. And like, this is what, you know, is concerning to us right now. Like people listen. I mean, so what, you might not get your way of it. It's, I'd like to discuss paddling with my, my representatives. <laughs> I'd like that. Just <laughs> getting some kind of legislation in the, in the, in the pipeline regarding people and paddle links. We did get some viewer mail on paddle links and some viewer mail on SUP, but we're not going to cover either of those this week. So Excellent. <laughs> so what was the consensus, Lewis? Nice. What was the, what's the takeaway? Um, we got really drunk. I know. <laughs> did you fix, yeah. did you fix the outdoors or not? <laughs> We're going to make it great again. Yes Josh. or no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think that those big like fly-in kind of meetings where you have a bunch of people who are sort of new to doing that and like a bunch of like business executives, it's good just for kind of making an impression and it, it's hard to really like get into the weeds on policy stuff in this kind of meetings they end up being really big and you know, people aren't super well versed in the issues, but I think it's really important like laying groundwork. So like I can go back in and talk to those offices, you know, in Is a there week. bagels or something or donuts or what do they have? <laughs> Is there snacks? Um, not, not in the congressional offices usually. No, coffee, Nero, nothing coffee, like that. Right. Coffee, water, you know, <laughs> boring. <laughs> they fly you out business class or they fly you out coach coach man i work for a nonprofit. <laughs> all right okay just checking <laughs> so right i'm answer. sure this uh um economic report that we discussed last week was thrown all around what were uh were there any thoughts on that did anybody you know we there's actually go ahead there was a hearing about it, actually, that was kind of interesting. There was just like a bunch of folks up at the front of the room testifying and just sort of talking about the economic impact of outdoor recreation. And um, I'm trying to think who was testifying. A guy from REI, the head of the Outdoor Industry Association. Um, Jeremy Jones was there talking about climate. That was pretty cool. Um, a guy from the RV Manufacturers Association. The RV uh, Manufacturers Association. Yeah, I can't remember what they're actually called, but something like that. Wow, what a cool world, Lewis. You got a cool job, man. Yeah, not too bad. Going back next week, actually, to go, we're doing kind of a similar thing with uh, with the climbers. So we have a bunch of like famous pro climbers coming in to go to go lobby. It's like Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell and Conrad Anker and Sasha DeJulian. Are you going? Are you going out for that one? I am. Oh, Back to DC on Monday. We'll get another report. <laughs> I, dude, this is my favorite part of this, just hearing about you in Washington, DC, man. It's such a different world. Thanks, man. I feel like it's kind of, I don't really do a good job of making it interesting, but I'm glad you're <laughs> I'm interested. Who cares about everybody else? 
Hey, we should do our guest. Yeah, okay. he's a busy guy. I have been so busting, busting my butt to try and get this guy lined up, so I don't want to miss him. So our guest is Brent Weasel. What can you tell us about Brent, John? Dr. Brent Weasel. That's his real name. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he's a paddler. you know better than I do. He was a slalom paddler. He was pretty good, yeah, right? Brent was like five years older than me. He was kind of one of my slalom racing gurus when I was growing up. Um, he was kind of like national B team level, junior team level, uh, hurt his shoulder, eventually stopped racing, went to med school. And I think he's the head of sports medicine now at Georgetown and just like super legit shoulder surgeon. So I think it'd be sweet to have him on and just kind of talk about shoulder injuries and paddling and dispel some myths. Brent and I went to the same high school and the same college. And now he is the head of sports medicine <laughs> at Georgetown. And I am one third caretaker of a podcast where we rip on SUP. <laughs> you guys rip on SUP. See, he got out of paddling. That's That, that was the thing that he did. All right, here we go. I'm going to try and uh, see if we can get Brent on here. He never looked back. That was you're right. That's what he did. He was just like I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to get my kids involved with tennis or golf or something besides paddling. <laughs> I think yeah. golf is the one. A lot of longevity. Hey guys. Hey Brent. How are hey, you? Hey Brent, welcome to the Hammer Factor. You are on the line with John Grace, Lewis Geltman, and John Weld. How are you? Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Brent. So we kind of introduced you a little bit, and you are, correct me if I'm wrong, an orthopedic surgeon at Georgetown. And what, That's what, right. What, what do you do there? What does that mean? Uh, so I do, I am a uh, shoulder surgeon, so I, I basically just take care of shoulders. Okay. And a paddler. Good paddler. We, and, Brent and I did a trip to uh, trip to mexico years and years ago some pretty serious white water do you still paddle brent you still get out a little bit here and there Uh, we live right at the top of the feeder canal in dc so uh i paddle a couple couple times a year um but uh you know i've I've known john for about 20 years i guess a bit Um, yeah yeah you race with my wife a bunch yeah and uh lewis uh, was a couple of years behind me in solemn racing. Um, so I, I used to coach him. He used to sneak into my house, uh, and, and, uh, steal one of my roommates porn magazines so he could look at him in the, <laughs> the uh, the that wasn't stealing. That was a whole lending library that you guys had. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> well, while we're on this topic, I also had, an old idea of Brent's that was my fake idea the entire way through college. All right. So let's, let's get into this. So, uh, you know, the idea is to talk about kayaking and shoulder injuries. And I want to k- kick things off by asking you a question uh, about a statement that Eric Martin told me once. Eric Martin's a friend of ours who kayaks, who runs a rafting company, Ohio pile, but he said that, if you kayak long enough, sooner or later, you're going to screw up your shoulders. True or false? You know, I don't, uh, you would think that's true. I mean, it's certainly hard on the shoulders. Um, yeah. but, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of people, uh, that kayak for a real, real long time, um, and don't have any problems with the shoulders. So, uh, you know, it, it's not inevitable, uh, but fairly likely I would say. 
what's the i mean what goes wrong what happens so i mean you know there's sort of two things uh that we see so in the um, younger patients and by that i mean anybody under probably 50 um we'll see a lot of people will dislocate their shoulders which is the most common thing you're going to see uh with paddling um, so mm-hmm. certainly uh happened to a lot of slalom racers um you know myself included that's sort of the end of my uh, slalom racing career um and uh you know it, that, that's pretty pretty straightforward and pretty easy to imagine why that happens just because uh you know you're you're putting your arm sort of up over your head and and sometimes in an uncontrolled situation and that's uh you know the position that makes you dislocate um and that certainly is the most common kayaking injury that you see then as you get older um actually that becomes much less common so once you're over about 50 uh really in normal everyday people once you're over uh, 30 or 35 it's very rare to dislocate your shoulder paddlers interesting uh, i never knew that was a young guy thing sorry to interrupt yeah that's no that's okay it's a young guy thing and it's actually unfortunately the one time where it's bad to be young so most of the time when people come in with an injury it's the, the results in young people are always better so shoulder dislocation is the one time where the younger you dislocate, the worse it is. So if you're under 20 and you dislocate, uh, there's somewhere between an 80 and a 95% chance it's going to happen again. And then each time it happens, it becomes easier. And certainly if you're a paddler and you're, you know, going back to the same situations, it's, it's highly likely that it's going to continue to be a problem. Whereas if you're over the age of 40, uh, it's less than a 10% chance that you dislocate again. Um, so this the one case where being uh, young is actually not a good thing. But, but, so as you start to get a little bit older, uh, you, um, you know, uh, the shoulder actually gets a little bit stiffer, and that's why it's less common to happen again. Uh, but so, you know, what we see in a lot of people when they get older is rotator cuff problems uh, or arthritis. And intuitively, I would have thought uh, I would be seeing a lot of people uh, that I used to kayak with uh, in the office for arthritis, uh, but it really hasn't played out. There's not a, you know, it's not, I would say any more common to really get arthritis in the shoulder, uh, in people that do a whole lot of kayaking than just everyday people. Um, it's not something like, uh, power lifting, uh, you know, where you're putting a lot of load on the joint. So if you don't dislocate, uh, you, you're probably okay from the point of view of the shoulder. What's, what's arthritis exactly? What causes it? So arthritis is when you wear out the, the cartilage that lines the joint. Um, and, and so, you know, you think of it typically in the hips and the knees because you walk on that. Um, we see it a fair bit in the shoulder. And, you know, just like a hip or a knee, you treat it with that shoulder replacement. Uh, and, I, you know, given the amount of, of use you put on them, you would think you'd see it more in paddlers. But I guess there's not enough um, sort of compressive load for that to be so much of a problem. I mean, there's certainly some paddlers out there with some arthritis, um, but not a, not nearly as many as I would have thought. Uh, now, there is a, a different subset that uh, if you have instability of the shoulder, I mean, you dislocate your shoulder sometime in your 20s, and it continues to sort of frequently come out or come part of the way out, that in and of itself will cause arthritis. Um, and those, those people are sort of a separate, in, in a separate uh, boat. So, well, go ahead, Galvin. I can see a question forming on your 
I was thinking it would be good to maybe just talk for a sec about, it. I feel like so often I see people who are like, Oh, my shoulder came out today and it's back in now. And they're like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, like they don't have their arm in a sling. They're like, just kind of walking around. They're like, yeah, I'm going to go paddle again in like three days. So like, I feel like it might be good information for people to kind of understand what they should, how they should be thinking about things. Like if they supplux or dislocate their shoulder. Right. And, and, you know, it depends on how often it's happened. Um, so, you know, the, certainly the first time you feel that your shoulder really comes out of place. Um, and obviously that comes, you know, so there's two types of instability that can happen in the shoulder. It can come partially out of place and you can go back in and we call that a subluxation. Uh, or it can come all the way out of place to the point where you've got to have somebody else, uh, put it back in. And, you know, typically that somebody else is a doctor in the emergency room. If, uh, the, you know, obviously if you're out somewhere on the river, uh, especially with the amount of shoulder instability, you see somebody all inevitably knows or thinks they know how to put a shoulder back in. And so most of the time in paddlers, it ends up going back in. And then it's always a little bit of a gray area because you, you've never seen an x-ray to, to truly document that it was all the way out. And, you know, it can, sometimes it'll feel like the shoulder comes out of place and it doesn't necessarily come out of place. Um, but certainly the first time somebody dislocates their shoulder, um, they want to see a, you know, that, that's one that indicates going to see an orthopedist. Um, you know, you want to get an x-ray and make sure you didn't break anything. Um, because if you do break the bone, it makes it much more likely to come out, uh, again. Uh, and then in terms of going back to paddling, if, if we <laughs> we're, we're laughing. We look grace is just writhing and in, in <laughs> imagine pain right now. Yeah, I'm sorry, this. Brent. I'm just like squirming, man. This is, I'm just, anyway, continue. This is really interesting. Sorry. Well, well you know, I mean, so the, 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 the one thing I will say, I mean, if you are out on the river and somebody just locates your shoulder, uh, it's a little bit like when somebody dislocates on a football field in the sense that that's the one time when we can get it back in within about three or four minutes. So, uh, once it's been out for more than a couple minutes, all the muscles spasm, very hard to get it back in. Uh, but if immediately when it dislocates, it'll actually slide back in relatively easily. Um, and you know, you can sort of think about it like Caddyshack, you know, the ball wants to go in his home. So uh, you just need to kind of happy Gilmore, bud. Pull on. <laughs> happy Gilmore. Sorry. Yeah. Don't mess with golf you, you, movie you. references with Beltman. <laughs> very serious about that. I mean, can 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 I mean, how but, hard is but, it to put someone's shoulder back? I mean, what kind of knowledge do you need, and is someone likely to really screw things up if they start monkeying around in there? You know, not a lot. I mean, as long as you sort of pull on it gently, um, and just like which way, like how do you pull the arm? How do you pull on that thing? So you want to grab the arm just below the shoulder, uh, and, uh, sort of pull it away from the body. Um, it's, like, you know, we call putting traction on it. And if you put like, traction on it, almost any joint will want to slide back where it's supposed to go. Like which way are you pulling it? Like, are you standing on their chest? Like if they're laying on their back, are you standing on their chest and pulling up or are you pulling? If, if you've got to pull that hard, then it's not going to go back in. You really just well, want to, try to get a visualization gen- of which direction you're pulling. Yeah. So you get them lying on their back. Um, and yeah. you, you, wrap, you know, yeah, you want to just pull gently anteriorly and then let it slide. Because typically at anterior dislocation, you want to just let it slide back and into the socket. So you really just anteriorly that arm. You're going uh, like you're, 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 you're going slightly like doing forward a, and away yeah. from their body, away from their chest. So you got your okay. arm, you're, you got your hand kind of in their armpit and you're yeah. pulling away from their chest. 
Okay. Um, and so that is something that's worth doing because, uh, you know, you're in the middle of the upper dock. It's a long walk out of there, especially uh, with one arm. I've done this probably a half dozen times on the side of the river and it's never made me queasy, but sitting here talking about it, I feel like I'm going to have to step away. For a <laughs> I subluxed on my shoulder years ago in Mexico, but it, it went out and went back in and I never looked back. I kept, I kept hammering. So let's say right, you you're in that, I mean, so you're in the minority there. You're in the, you're in the lucky group. Um, yeah. Story of my life. Worry. And, and, <laughs> but I think I was around when that happened, and you were older. I mean, you were in your 30s, maybe? So this was 19, probably, what, 1993, 94? So I was probably 55. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I had to have been I had to in my 20s. Mid-20s. But, I mean, you weren't 15. Yeah. No, definitely and not 15. But, you know, so the, back to Lewis's question... If you dislocate before you go back to paddle, uh, really the the what determines when you're ready is when you've got uh, the strength and the coordination back of all the muscles that help hold the shoulder in place. Because except at the very extreme ends of motion, it's not the ligaments, um, you know, which are the the connective tissue around the shoulder, which is where we actually fix when we do surgery. It's it's not the ligaments that make the difference; it's the muscles. Um, and so if you don't have that muscle coordination, you're almost definitely going to come out again. Uh, and every time you come out, you do more damage. Hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's definitely not one of these things where you want to run right back into it until you really feel strong again. Now that can be in the shortest two or three days. Um, but, uh, it can be longer than that. It just depends on the person and it depends on the time. The first time it generally takes a little bit longer. So let's you assume you've, you've never hurt. Let's assume you've never hurt your shoulder before. Yep. shoulders what what can you do what what exercises what can you do to uh, uh you know make it less likely you're going to dislocate your shoulder or, or get hurt so i mean what you can do is you can strengthen up the rotator cuff muscles uh that help stabilize the shoulder and keep the, the ball in the socket which is mm-hmm. essentially what we do both uh in people that were treating without surgery and after surgery mm-hmm. uh, and the best way to do that is go on the internet and look for a rotator cuff strengthening program should be something that involves, uh, TheraBands, you know, so the stretchy rubber bands, um, right. and it's going to be, they're very simple exercises. They mm-hmm. take about mm, two or three minutes to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, if, if you do a lot of paddling, it's something you probably ought to be doing, uh, at least three or four times a week, if not every day. You, you once told me this is like doing dental floss. It's like dental floss for your shoulder. Yeah. It's like brushing your teeth for the shoulder. So, I mean, I, you know, for me, towards the end of my racing career, I was having enough problems with both shoulders uh, that I couldn't paddle without doing them. What happened to you? Yeah, what was wrong with your shoulders? Thin. So I, I uh, dislocated one shoulder, uh, the one I eventually had surgery on uh, in a race, and then the other one, I uh, actually tore something called the superior labrum uh, while surfing in the ocean uh, in a kayak. Um, well, that's your problem. Similar sort of problem. So it's a little, it's a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Should be surfing a kayak. Oh, oh man. Let me, so Brent, pardon. Uh, hey, I don't want to interrupt you here, but I've had a lot of success with, uh, with free weights with, with like doing military press, uh, type exercises with, uh, with dumbbells. And I've, 
Yep. And I've, I've recommended that to a lot of people who have not had a lot of success with, um, with the TheraBands. And I've just felt like all those little balance muscles from putting that over your head, uh, really help. It might, it might leading them in the wrong direction when I recommend that. Uh, unfortunately I would probably say, yeah, oh. I mean, uh, in, in surprise, general, surprise, John uh, Grace giving bad <laughs> advice. I mean, I've huh. given that to advice at least to 20 different people, but, but, not, but, I, so, but my shoulders have always been fine. So that's, I just attributed it to that exercise. So there's, there's an, there's there's an orthopedic surgeon just wondering what the hell's going on with all these pallets. <laughs> You're putting somebody's kids through college. <laughs> um, if, if there's one exercise that the shoulder's really biomechanically not designed to do, it's actually military press. So it, it does not do real well pushing weight away from the body overhead. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not such an issue with instability, but it's definitely an issue with people as they start to get problems with their rotator cuff once they get a little bit older. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in your case, probably because you've never had a shoulder, you know, you really haven't ever had a shoulder issue. Uh, you know, your shoulders are strong, they work well. And so, you know, that's why it hasn't been, hadn't been a problem for you and it, it's okay. Uh, but, you know, again, it's, it's sort of what John was saying before, the little, the rubber band exercises that don't feel like you're doing a a whole hell of a lot uh, is like brushing your teeth, building the bigger muscles around the shoulders a little bit like eating dinner. Um, you know, so if you go to the dentist and the dentist says you brush your teeth, you say, well, I eat dinner, you know, every night. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's similar, similar difference. I'm not buying it. <laughs> Fake news. Uh, so far, keep doing it. alternative fact right there. Five uh, one. I'm just kidding. I'm just fully kidding. That is, that is, uh, you learn something new every day. Awesome. So, can we talk about, uh, I, this is, I know this is probably out of your specialty, but can we talk about back injuries real quick? I mean, you can probably illuminate some of the issues here. Um, I, I, I've, there's a whole generation of paddlers now running really, really, tall waterfalls um and what do you do you think that's going to lead to orthopedic issues down the road uh you know I, it's an interesting question i mean i asked lewis this question uh, i saw him last weekend i asked him you know these guys are running stuff that certainly you know when i was paddling you sort of considered anything over 40 feet uh to be uh, once once you went past that uh, whether you got hurt or not was completely up in the air. I mean, uh, you know, I think Corn Addison was the first one to run something about 70 feet, and he broke two vertebrae in his back when he did it. Uh, and so guys seem to be doing it without any problems. Um, I think you, you know, they are likely going to have problems as they get older. I mean, I can tell you uh, from, again, from some of the people that I have paddled with, uh, you know, they've had some back issues and when we get x-rays of their back, uh, you know, you'll see some old compression fractures in there. Um, you know, and, and most of the time when you ask them about it, they're like, oh yeah, I went over Ohio Pile Falls and I landed, you know, totally flat boof. And, you know, that's not a very big drop, uh, in, in the spectrum of what people are doing now. Uh, and, you know, say, yeah, my back hurt a whole lot for about three weeks. I could barely walk. Well, when that type of stuff happens, you probably are damaging things um and so uh yeah those those are definitely gonna be issues as you get older 
uh, you know, it's not, none of that stuff gets better uh, as you start to get older. Well, let me but say my impression. Oh, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. Well, let, let me I, say, say my impression. You first. Okay. Let me say, you, you know, while there are a lot of people uh, running a lot of waterfalls, let me just say, Jason Hale has broke his back. Rush Sturgis has broke his back. Isaac Levinson has broke his back. Joe Morley just broke his back. The list can kind of go on. So, anyway, I just want to. There was a comment. Yeah, I mean, that people weren't breaking their backs, but it's happening. You know. Broken back is the new dislocated shoulder. Yeah, looks like a badge of honor now. Yeah, it's way trendier. <laughs> shoulder injuries are super old school. If you want to be yeah. with the times, so you got to break your back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, what I was going to say was I'm, I'm frankly amazed when I see what these guys are doing that they're not getting hurt. So it sounds like maybe some of them are getting hurt. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, should we talk about my shoulder woes or does that seem uh, excessive? I'd love to talk about your shoulder no. woes. Let's hear what you got. Yeah. If, if someone's more miserable than me, I'm all ears. <laughs> I, I can't get enough. I don't know, Brent. Do you want to explain the, the scenario, or do you want me to do it? Why don't you, you do correct it? Correct all the things I got. It's your shoulder. Basically, you have the <laughs> shoulders of a ninety-year-old. <laughs> that's the impression I'm getting. So I've had that sums it up pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've had surgery for dislocations on both shoulders, and the more recent one has gotten. I seem like it seemed to me like it never really got full range of motion back after the last surgery. How many it's times have you dislocated been, your shoulder? I don't think I, I think they were each out three times before I had surgery. So it was three times each. It wasn't like chronic. You know what your problem is? Your arms are too long. There's too much leverage. I think you might be right, man. Or you, you should be using, I'm going to give you two suggestions. One, <laughs> you need like a shorter paddle, son. 195 <laughs> centimeter paddle. That's suggestion A. B, Stand-up paddleboarding. <laughs> just take it easy. I think that's what Brent's suggesting for all of us, really, that we should just be at home taking it easy, not going out and putting our shoulders at risk. But all right, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to overrun your story here. Go go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, so now I have uh, pretty bad arthritis in my left shoulder, and it seems like the head of the humerus is starting to collapse, like maybe from a vascular necrosis. And so what once was a ball and socket joint is now sort of like a cube and socket. What is it? What did you call that? Something necrosis? A vascular, where the blood flow to the bone dies. And Brent, please correct me because I'm butchering this. Um, as the blood flow to the bone gets cut off and the bone dies and then it can sort of collapse. Um, is this what's no, happening, but, Brent? Yeah, no, he's got it right. I mean, uh, you know, uh, it, it doesn't, it's, it's rare to have happen after the surgery uh, that Lewis had, uh, you know, but either as a result of the surgery or maybe as a result of the dislocations to sort of his bad luck from him, um, uh, you know, the, essentially the, the bone needs blood just like anywhere else in the body. And if it doesn't get it, the, the bone will actually die. Uh, and once that happens, it, it falls apart. And that's, that's what's going on in his shoulder. That sounds awful. How do you fix that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can, can he come see you at Georgetown? Yeah, Brent, how do we fix this? Fix that up? Or? 
Well, also, you know, unfortunately, once it gets to what he's got, the only real option is a shoulder replacement. Oh. We could just put him down. Once <laughs> 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 yeah. this Republican health bill makes it through, that's probably going to be the only option left. <laughs> <laughs> so... If you so wait wait you could do a shoulder replacement like a like a hip or a knee replacement these things actually work or what happens then because like I know dudes who get like a knee replacement and they're they're like jump they're doing backflips on a trampoline four hours later basically what are hip are hip replacements or, or sorry shoulder replacements as successful so, as these so replacements need to be or hip well, replacements hip, or whatever hip replacements work great uh, knee replacements work okay uh pretty well uh in the right person meaning they're really meant to get you so you can you know somebody they they can't walk at all get from walking mm-hmm. uh you know the, the the guy doing splits on the trampoline is probably not going to be real happy with the long term and that's that's rare um and shoulder replacements are are uh sort of along a similar vein meaning uh you know for people that have terrible pain and really can't do anything with them they work great uh when you start talking about younger people young in this situation in sort of 40s and, and early 50s, uh, we do worry, worry about them wearing out over time. Uh, and they function, you know, they're great for relieving pain. They function real, real well. They don't function like a normal shoulder. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it, it, you know, the concept of high-level whitewater kayaking after one is something that uh, Lewis may or may not explore whether or not it's possible. He, he may be the text test case. Um, I'm thinking of the Seinfeld where where the the woman walks without moving her arms. Is that what Lewis will look like after she has the shoulder replacements? <laughs> no, I mean they work they work great. Uh, it's, it's a great operation. They really they get people back functioning well. Uh, it's just a question whether they can handle the load uh, of you know high level kayaking. Are so what's next? This, what's next? Yeah, I mean, what's the next step for? I mean, can you go out and paddle today, Lewis? I mean, what's what's up? Yeah, I can paddle. I'm just like I've lost so much range of motion that I feel like I just kind of suck. Like I feel like I just can't do everything I want to do in the boat, and I guess that's frustrating. And if I do too much, which is you know probably fifty percent of how much I would normally be paddling, I uh, it's like very painful, hmm. and. I don't know. It seems like talking to Brent about it and talking to a surgeon out here in Portland, there's some options to maybe try to open up the labrum a little bit, just kind of loosen things up, uh, just kind of clean up debris and scar tissue in there. And hopefully that'll give me some short-term relief. And maybe this like half shoulder replacement is in the cards a little further down the road, but hopefully something to push off for, as long as possible, I guess. We may have to do like a crowd crowdsourcing funding <clears throat> to get a new shoulder for you, Lewis. Right. We could probably raise two, three hundred dollars. Yeah, dude. We got seven or eight listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Our listeners just in like a hundred dollars each. Man, be three hundred dollars. Man, I do a weird. I do a weird thing now where I don't even like. I have no control over this. It's happening like it's like on a cellular level. Where if I start falling over, like I start tipping over my boat, I won't reach out to brace anymore. I do this weird thing where I, my shoulder tucks, my, my my elbow tucks into my, my stomach, and I kind of do this really 
wimpy looking low brace kind of thing and i hang on it because i don't want to like reach out and push myself back up again i look like a complete toron when i do it and i'm kind of ashamed of myself and i'm hoping no one's looking at me but i have no control over it anymore because my body would not let me reach out to like do like these big dynamic high braces i used to do it's like an alert goes off well we got some viewer mail about that so John well you sure you like never hurt your shoulder <laughs> no i haven't but something about my body's saying just don't is not i'm not doing that nope not gonna happen uh, so probably good self-preservation oh. instincts yeah hmm. yeah i did it the, i did it last weekend i was just like oh my god i look like an old man out here jesus <laughs> so brent you are an old man oh come on now <laughs> so brent what's your uh, uh are, are you doing like one surgery a week, ten surgeries a week. What's 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 a day in the life like of an orthopedic surgeon? So uh, you know, I I do somewhere between uh, five and eight surgeries in a week. Uh, you know, over about a day and a half, and then the rest of the time uh, I'm seeing patients in the office. Um, and so you know, people that we've operated on, people we're going to operate on, people the the vast majority of people I see, we actually can you know, I can make better without surgery. So a lot of times a combination of a cortisone injection and some physical therapy or just some physical therapy. What other, uh, I'm sure you see some paddlers, but what other things are wearing people's shoulders out that you see out there? So, uh, you know, I mean, the most common thing I see is just your regular run of the mill, you know, 50 to 70 year old, uh, really that just uses their arm for, daily life. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, you know, we, we see, you know, I, I see a fair amount of, of the people that, you know, that you would think of. So, uh, a lot of football players, uh, see a fair number of baseball players, um, you know, especially pitchers, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, the one group that really destroys their shoulders is uh, weightlifters. Um, and actually there is a sport that's worse for, for, uh, shoulders than, kayaking and that's trampoline or uh, trampoline and trapeze well anyone who knows me knows i love the trapeze so that's a problem (laughs) (laughs) there there used to be a trapeze studio in downtown dc and that was uh good for a whole lot of business is that just because people are hanging it just stretches everything out or yeah i mean you're supporting your whole body weight by your arm hanging up overhead so if, if you think paddling's bad for it uh trapeze is a whole lot worse so doing pull-ups is not a good idea because i like doing pull-ups when i go to the gym no pull-ups are great because you're not you know it's a controlled load you're not suspending yourself and then you know bouncing up and down yeah so this okay is, so this is so no, let me ask you yeah go ahead this I'm is sorry. no joke literally i go from military presses to pull-ups when i'm at the gym <laughs> <laughs> so so let me ask you a question the the best Okay, give a, guy, a kayaker comes in for an, with a shoulder injury of some sort. Give me an idea yep. of, of who the worst the worst kind of patient is and who's the best kind of patient. So we all know what how to be, how to behave when we come into the, sh- the 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 surgeon for our shoulder problem. Yeah, I mean, I, in general, uh, kayakers are actually, at least for me, pretty good patients because the ones that uh, seek me out. Um, a lot of times know that I, you know, I have some paddling experience. And so, uh, I think it, it works well because, you know, you sort of, you do have a limited amount of time and we don't have to spend a whole lot of time with them trying to make me understand, 
what they're doing, what they did, what they want to do, uh, that, that conversation takes about 20 seconds, you know, the, 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 um, versus I think with somebody that doesn't paddle, it takes a real long time. And in general, uh, as long as they sort of listen and realize, you know, when you tell them the time frame, how long it's going to take to get better, uh, most of the paddlers I've taken care of are actually great patients um, because uh, they want to get they want to get better. They tend to be pretty fit, um, and you know they you know you tell them what to do and they do it. Uh, you know as opposed to some of the other folks who will sort of look at you and you say, "Well, you got to do these exercises," and they look at you like, "Yeah, I don't really do those exercises," uh, and then it just doesn't work. So, um, you know, I, the ones that aren't great patients are the ones that, that come in and. And, you know, you've seen their shoulder come out of place five or ten times and you say, look, you really ought to think about doing something about this because it's just going to get worse. Uh, and then, you know, they stick their head in the sand and they come back and now they got a worse problem. Uh, and it just kind of keeps building on that. So Lewis. Based Lewis, <laughs> is what you're saying. <laughs> no, Lewis is actually a pretty good patient, although I will say, uh, you know, Lewis and I butted heads a little bit. I, and I did not operate on Lewis. Uh, for any mm. <laughs> I see. But, but, but we, I see. We we butted heads a little bit when uh, you know he he wanted to be uh, back and doing everything he could about two weeks after surgery uh, <laughs> in, in what was expected to be a six month recovery. So <laughs> I thought I was pretty good most of the time. So on a final <laughs> note, on a final note, can we, as a medical doctor? Can you please explain to Lewis that he should not be chewing tobacco? <laughs> I think this is a great point. That's be- it's better than smoking cigarettes. <laughs> See, that's not the, that's not the strong <laughs> answer Weasel that I'm looking is for. A glass half full kind of guy, I can tell you. Uh, he does shoulders. What does he know? <laughs> you said you said you wanted to put him down, so this is. Can one you get way the closest of the of the lip and gum? Is that possible? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> although I, I will say if you've ever seen somebody with you know uh tongue cancer you know either tongue or mouth cancer which is what you get from chewing tobacco long term yeah. uh you would probably rather be dead i mean it, it is oh. when you when you end up getting <laughs> that it's terrible okay so. well all right on, on, on a selfish note before we let you go here i broke my ribs four weeks ago and it's kind of dragging on doc what what, what should I do here? Is there a way to that, speed that this thing up? Gonna hurt. No, it's going to hurt like hell. I mean, uh, rib, ribs are a good, you're going to, anytime you break a bone, you're going to get some pain in that for between nine and 12 months. Uh, and ribs uh, typically hurt for a good three months. The good news with it is you can just ignore them. Uh, you know, if you can tolerate it, you're not going to make it worse. Man up. Not <laughs> woman up, I should say. No military presence. It's and really I, tough. I'm not, doctor, this is not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> Bad patient. Well, Bad patient. Thank you so much for coming on the Hammer Factor. Yeah, thanks, Brent. Weasel. Thanks for lining this one up, John Weld. Good, good. Uh, one. This was my a, pleasure. This was no, a it was Gilman's idea. It was a good one. I think I think it, it was a lot to be learned here for, for us paddlers out there. Yeah. Well, ha- happy talking. I, I like the show you guys are doing. Uh, actually, one of Lewis's friends, uh, Neil Schott, uh, introduced me to this, and uh, you, you guys are entertaining. It's just good, good entertainment in the car. <laughs> well, thank you. Here we go. I thanks, man. So, All right, thanks, Brent. So keep, Cheers, man. Keep it up. Later. Take care. All right, bye.
Well, there we go. Uh, we've learned a tremendous amount of far-ranging subjects, from shoulders to trapeze to Lewis's uh, impending mouth and shoulder cancer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nine to 12 months I'm going to fill these ribs. That is not what I wanted to hear. Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> Jeez. You don't need a rib replacement. I feel like just ending the show now. I was going to go into your mail and whatever, but you're just going to go sit in the bathroom with the lights out. Yeah, I mean, my, my stomach's all, all around. My stomach's all queasy from talking about shoulders popping out, and then anyway, that was awesome. Great interview. Yeah, that was cool. Okay, a little viewer mail. Do it. As always, we love our viewer mail. We had some really good viewer mail this time. We do every time, but we had a, a bunch of good stuff. Uh, let's get right I into this say, one. Go ahead. Well, okay. First of all, we should think of some way of summing this up because we threw out the question about Jackson kayaks last week, and we got a tremendous response. We did. All over what the map. The Is there a way? What's that? What was the question? Uh, that's right. You weren't here. Yeah, the question was really, why is there such a love-hate relationship with Jackson Kayaks and in playboating? And play there seems boating. to be in playboating, and are they intertwined? We had Dane was on briefly, and and I don't know that he necessarily addressed the question specifically, but towards the end of the podcast, we threw that out there, and we had a ton of people write back as to what they thought was the dynamic with paddlers and EJ and playboating and Jackson. And, and there was some very, I mean, a lot of these responses are probably. 500 words. I can't read them. I mean, how do you sum them up? I mean, what do you say? Uh, well, we asked for this, so we have to think of some way of summing it up, right? Uh, this is what this was the general. What was the general theme? Was there one theme that we could pick out from this? The one. Was there any? Were there Jackson defenders? Were there Jackson haters? What? How did it stand? Most of them weren't really taking a side. They were just putting their two cents in as to way it looked. And I just, I would say the consensus was. Um. The Jackson, the Jackson brand is like the Yankees. They're on top. They have the biggest budget. They buy the best athletes. They, you know, they're and you either love the Yankees or you hate the Yankees. You want to see the Yankees win the World Series or you want every other team to beat the Yankees. So I think just looking through this, that's the best summary I got. Does that make any sense? Geltman, what do you think of that? He's not buying it. That's the look we're getting right now. I'm not buying it. Look. Well, what's your opinion, Lewis? You missed this whole thing. Now you're in the hot seat, my man. My, my opinion on on playboating or Jackson kayaks. I'm trying to think of the. We're framing the question is as to why. Why? What's? Yeah. Animosity is the wrong word, but why is there this? Oh, you're a playboater, and then why oh, the hate on playboating? Yeah. And then is EJ, in, and there seems to be an anti-Jackson sentiment floating around. Is that tied in with playboating somehow, or is that just... I think I think playboating kind of split between, like, big wave playboating, which is not really accessible to most people if, you know, through because of skill or because of geography or both, and small hole playboating, which seems comparatively lame. And, you know, even among the playboaters, the guys who are, you know, out crushing it in Quebec in the spring look at the guys play voting and like, you know, at NOC or something and sort of, I mean, maybe not at them personally, but at that activity and sort of roll their eyes. 
and it's this thing that is it's very separate from paddling on big whitewater, which is, I think, what most people find to be the most compelling. And when people go too far down that rabbit hole, it becomes an activity that people look at in the same way that they look at SUP. It's not really kayaking. It's some other activity that's sort of has some things in common, but it's not, in fact, it. So so what's up with Jackson then? Because we're getting people who are posting, I'm not going to mention his name, but posting uh, videos extended rants on Jackson kayaks at Walmart parking lots in front of trucks. <laughs> Just and one long, tapping, one long gay joke. But he's, he's tapping into a, a vein that, you know, a vein that's out there, a sentiment that's out there. And I think we should wrap this up because we spent enough time talking in this discussion. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't really want to, I think I'll keep my thoughts to myself on this one. <laughs> well, anyway, a lot of really good yeah. responses. They're all, you know, it's they're they're so in depth. They're hard to read on the air here. But that that was that's my summary. You know, it's uh... we had one. Who was the guy that wrote the really long email? I think he should get a, a mention because he put a lot of time and thought into this 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 this, this issue. Maybe we um, should have like a hammer factor message board where people can uh, can debate our our pronouncements from upon high. That'd be good if we have really long threads. We can we'll bring those up. Like, no, no, John Weld said. <laughs> hat, t- hat tip to Billy Carson. Billy Carson had a really Billy Carson, long, that, was, that was the guy, yeah. Long email. He was the guy that came up with the Yankees analogy, is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, all, right. all right, moving on. Yeah. Uh, here we go. This, is, uh, this comes at us from Andrew. He says, will we ever see carbon kayaks in widespread use for extreme racing, and how long do you think we will be using rotomolded plastic in boats? P.S. The Potomac references are the only reason I listen to the show. Thanks, Andrew. Fellas? I mean, I think it's possible. I think you could build a composite kayak that would withstand the rigors of creek boating, but it would probably cost four or $5,000. And until there are people around willing to pay for something like that, it's not going to happen. I think something's going to happen with thermoforming that's going to not be an iteration in terms of boat improvement, but it'll be a, a big step, evolutionary step up. I think we're going to see boats that are coming in much more, much more rigid, much more composite-like in their performance and weight uh, with a similar strength. I'm not sure. I don't have a timeline on that, but I think, you know, Liquid Logic's certainly knocking on that door. The problem is, is there's so little money for kayaking specific industries to do that type of R&D, and it's going to have to come from another industry. Yeah. And you nailed it you right know, there. Aerospace that, or something. You, I mean, you nailed it. There's, you know the incentive the for what you got to spend on the R&D to get that done is it going to pay off i mean i guess if you could just have it for 20 years but I, you know what i mean and like shane said in a long time ago issue number 4 or whenever we had shane on rotomolded kayaks are good yeah you know it's a it's a it's a good <sighs> i mean i've been around for i've been around for a number of years and you know when i first started paddling all we had was glass boats and I'll be honest, man. I mean, there's there's some nice things about them, but by and large, they're a pain in the ass. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you could go paddle, you go out paddling for the weekend and break your boat the first hour of the first day, and that was you had to deal with that for the rest of the trip. You know what I mean? It sucked. So, um, I, I it seems know. like there's been some advances in composites since then, though. You know, like you could build a boat with like a like a urester resin or like a urethane resin, and you know, if you're building a one-piece mold, like one-piece boats with a bladder, so that it weren't you didn't have to deal with the seaming issue. 
Yeah, well, the problem is it's, it's going to be cost. Those expensive. things are going to be cost. Exactly. Yeah, you know? totally. Totally. Um, and there's no no company can make a go of making four and $5,000 boats. That's just not economically yeah. possible. I think everybody wants a lighter boat, but nobody wants a more fragile boat. So yeah, that's I agree right. with that. That's right. That's why it's going to have to be, I think it's going to have to be thermoforming because yeah. that's, the, that's the right price point, too. Okay, moving on. Uh, this one comes at us hat tip to our buddy Jeff Calhoun. Um, he says, I'm just catching up on old, old episodes. And then he goes right into, I'm a big proponent of the Washington Tuck. I don't consider myself a great or frequent waterfall runner, but it's really worked for me. I had to train myself and practice a little bit, but it quickly became second nature. And I think it's really the way to go for most big drops. The arm position is way tighter, more comfortable, and less exposed. Better for shoulders, hands, wrists, etc. Galen also has it dialed. There's a million things I'd love to chat with you guys about, but that's one that I think deserves some explanation. We should have asked Brent what he thinks about the Washington talk versus the Oregon talk in an orthopedic Yeah, Do you think it's impossible to explain the Washington talk in audio-only form? Uh, Let me try. Yeah. All right. So the standard Oregon tuck is for for the record, this is when you run big waterfalls, keep the paddle from blasting you in the face or this, doing something else or breaking or doing something else other untoward that, as you land. This is when you're planning on plugging. You're trying right. to go deep. You don't want right. any kind of boof or anything like that. So right. this is straight down. And this is a way that the kind of the concept is what you do with your paddle and what do you do from your body from getting the air knocked, you know, just getting knocked knocked back. So the Oregon tuck is you put your paddle, you cross your front arm beside It's basically your, like you're setting up to roll. Basically like you're getting in a roll position and you're tucking as far forward as you can, putting your head down, trying to be as streamlined as possible and dive in. The Washington tuck is you, you're penciling in, you've got your direction, everything feels good, and then you're taking your paddle – Oh man, how do you explain that? You It's hard. So you you take your It's like from from the Washington from the normal Oregon tuck, you take what would be your front arm and pull it all the way down so it's like next to your waist. So it's like internally rotated and down and then your backhand you switch your grip and bring it over and grab in front of that hand like right behind the throw of your paddle. So you have a lot of paddle behind you. And you have both hands holding near the front blade. So instead of having, right. And so like, instead of your front shoulder being up and over your head in the position where it's most likely to dislocate, it's internally rotated and against your stomach, which is the position where it's the least likely to dislocate. Is that Todd Wells who came up with that? It was actually Todd Gilman. Oh, Todd Gilman. That's who it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was a Todd. Yeah. I don't know if he ever did it. He just talked about it. He just like had this idea. Yeah. And we were talking about it one day, and then I would say the first person I saw actually doing it was Nate Klima. Um and I've he was just it. just messing around doing it on like Wishbone on the Little White, and it sort of took off from there. And I would say that Galen probably is its steesiest practitioner at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever done it, Lewis? I haven't. I like it's hard for me to uh, it's hard to get a tight tuck like your arm is kind of blocking where you want to lean forward, and like your cockpit rim kind of gets in the way of your forearm. Like it seems like it's harder than you think it is. Yeah. I've never, but I also like, I don't really run big drops either. So 
I do the Burning Man. That's a classic. It Just works. both hands over my head. I'll tell you something. Dave Fuseli does. Has been talking about which I actually can can I I can see what he's talking about. Where he does like a he likes to peel out right above a big drop. So as he's approaching the lip, the, you know, if he's coming in from the from the river river left, the the drop will be on his left side as he peels out, and he's looking over the lip. And as he peels out, he runs it just as he's finishing the the peel out. But I like it because you could get a draw stroke in. And sort of bring your nose into that draw stroke could be a manipulating stroke, and then help set the set the uh, set the angle as you go in. I don't know; it just seems to ring true for me. You know what I'm saying? I yeah, Kill I hear you. you. I hear you. I don't know. I want to try the Washington Tuck sometime when my ribs heal up. I'm gonna go find a water yeah, man. and try that one a, a few times. Uh, what's the tallest waterfall you've ever run, Grace? Um, probably you've 80, run seventy footers before. Eighty, yeah. 70, 80 feet, something like that. Yeah, maybe. I'd say 50. 50 is my, as high as I'll go, period. Until you go higher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I always used I to know. say that too. 30 foot, that's it. Foot, that's it. <laughs> okay. Uh, All right. What's, we have one more, don't we? We do have Andre one Spino more. Smith. From Andre Spino Smith. This is a good one. Um, Dr. Dre. Yeah, Dr. Dre. Where is that one? Uh, okay. Now I'm going to kind of this is a this is a longer one. Big hat tip to Andre for sending in these links and this email. So, uh, he says, "Mr. Grace, it's been forever. Hope you're doing well." Um, he says, "At one point I had the opportunity <coughs> to paddle with the Canadian Flatwater Racing Team." He thought in summary, he thought he knew um, how to do a forward stroke, but then he had a chance to go and uh, work out with the flatwater team. <laughs> What's interesting to me is there's this whole wealth of knowledge out there about the forward stroke that no one in whitewater is looking at, as far as he knows, um, the uh, the flatwater crowd. He says, I just watched a seven hour long uh, watch an hour long video of seven time world champion talk about the forward stroke and can now say with certainty that my technique has always been fairly poor. Could a flatwater racer become one of the best whitewater racers? Probably not since whitewater is too nuanced to pick up quickly, but send one of the best whitewater racers to train with a flatwater team for a few months. And my theory is they would gain an absolute massive advantage. What do you guys so think? I have about two that? things to say about that. One okay. is. You know, it's a different forward stroke because when you're using the wing blade, like ideal technique for using the wing is like totally different than for using a non blade. Um, but that said, you know, doesn't Fisher have a flatwater sprint background? If you're from South Africa, yeah, probably um, paddled sprints <laughs> at some point. Yeah, I mean, that's and, like, uh, that's Andrew like... McEwen. Raced sprint for a while, like a long time. You know, like the guys who race wild water seriously draw a lot of inspiration on forward stroke stuff from the guys who race flat water sprint. And I mean, if you want to see how fast Andrew is, like go out to the cheat race this weekend and like <laughs> watch, watch him disappear into the horizon in front of yeah. you. He'll give you, he'll give you, <laughs> you know? that, I guess, as we used to call it, he'll be like a little dot on the horizon. <laughs> Here's the thing, right? Is you know, when I used to train wild water, I was there right when we made the transition from flat from regular paddles to wing paddles. You know, and as Gelman says, the wing dictates that this, this the wing only functions if you use it a certain way and it it basically it's like you the way that barton explains it greg barton explains it is you're, it's putting it's like you're grabbing hold of a street sign a vertical street sign in front of you and pulling yourself past it 
And then as the paddle passes your hip, the wing wants to fly out to the side. That's just the way it kind of goes. And the wing doesn't work at all unless you do that. You just can't do that in a whitewater boat. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, is when I taught kayaking, and I taught kayaking for forever, um, I was always hesitant to get into the forward stroke with most of my students because 90% of my students' problems was control strokes in terms of doing stern, sort of micro stern draws as you're paddling down the river to keep their boat going straight. And even, even good whitewater paddlers, and you guys do the same thing and probably even know it, it seems like about half of your forward stroke in whitewater is doing little micro adjustments to keep your boat going in the right direction. Sweeping out, pulling in with a stern draw, doing a little bit of a bow draw as you begin the forward stroke. It's really hard to, to isolate a perfect forward stroke in, in a whitewater boat. And also you start looking at people like Shipley, who traditionally has a terrible forward stroke. You know, Shipley was one of our country's best slalom racers. Or you look at the, the Martin Gickler, who is the wildwater paddler from Germany, who was the fastest wildwater paddler in the world for many years, uh, had a terrible forward stroke by, by every classical standards. But they were super fast because they had a, a style of forward stroke that worked well for their physique and their body and their training type or whatever, you know. But I think what exactly. you get from flatwater training, which these extreme racers don't have, is a sense of discipline. You know, you go out there with the flower paddles and you say, holy shit, if I really work hard four or five hours a day, six days a week, I'm going to get fast as shit. You know, I think that's that's the lesson we learned from flat water paddling. I don't know, man. I'm, I'm kind of in disagreement. I feel like people, you know, like I think that your point about you're splitting hairs about these guys not having great forward strokes. I mean, you show me one whitewater paddler who has a forward stroke like as good as Scott, Scott Shipley's or Marcus Gickler's, you know, it's like. They might not have it compared to the. I mean, get, you've seen you know, like classical I mean, ideal, it's, but it's, it's laughable. His elbows are like hitting the, the down along the cockpit of his boat. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think your point about making adjustments for your physique and everything else is is sound. But like those guys are. I mean, you're talking about the difference between being like somebody with like a 98th percentile forward stroke and like a 99.9th percentile forward stroke and. You know, for most people who are just getting started in kayaking, I think that it's an extremely uh, something that people give nowhere near enough attention to. I, I I think that having a sound forward stroke is super important. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I tell you what I do notice is I can I can usually spot someone to learn how to paddle when they're younger than like thirteen or fourteen. They always look different in the water. And there's no, it's not a, there's no common thread of technique, but they have a fluidity that's different than someone who learned later in life. Yeah, so, so it's plausible. My take on this is that I think going out and doing flat water is you're going to learn things about your stroke that you're not necessarily going to pay attention to if you're on the river all the time. And that's a good thing. But it's just like, uh, you know, I liken it to trail running versus running on the track. You know, when you're running on the track, you're focused on this stride and this rhythm and whatnot. But when you're running on the trail, the trail's dictating your pace and dictating where you place your paddle. And I think it's the same thing as flat water versus white water. I mean, you could have the greatest stroke in the world, but if you don't have timing and know where to put your paddle, it's not going to help you. I just think white water's – I think a, a good forward stroke is – one element of whitewater paddling, um, but it's not the element of paddling like it is in flat water. I agree with you. I mean, yeah, I agree. I just think that 
boat trajectory through a rapid. Like be like a good paddler, you'll see even the mediocre forward stroke will enter a class four rapid, and as they go through like a, com- a complicated eddy line back into current through another eddy line as they approach like a crux move. They're doing a smooth stroke the entire way because they're reading their ability to read the trajectory of their boat through variable currents. Mm-hmm. That's where you see tremendous skill in paddling, in my opinion. You know, yeah, that's no, that you. to me. That's 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 the most obvious feature of a good paddler. The forward stroke usually falls by the. It's there, but it's it's not it's not that. Now that's not to say you don't need the important elements of a good catch and you know decent posture, and it's not that you can throw all that out the window, but. You know, I think that there's a point to where the technique itself is not going to help you that much. You know, it's you know, it's like back in the wrestling days. You know, you could have the greatest technique for a single leg takedown and whatever, but if you didn't just take the other guy down, it wasn't going to help. You know, you got to just make that boof, or you just got to make that turn. I think you just got to do it. I was wondering when you were going to get wrestling involved with this podcast. It took 22 episodes, but here it is. Well, now that I can't talk about (laughs) stuff anymore, I mean, Jesus. (laughs) Cat's out of the bag. All right, guys. We are are over time. Rants and Raves. Rants and Raves are our favorite section of the show. Everyone, Rants and Raves. John Weld, you're first. I got one. I got one, and I'm ready to rant, baby. (laughs) Uh, I'm telling you right now. I'm telling uh, you. This is an open... An open statement to boat designers out there. Get your act together in terms of designing cockpit rims. You guys are, are out of your friggin' minds with these cockpit rims. And we had a boat designer, I'm not mentioning any names, but I will give you a clue. He's been on this show. Throw out a cockpit rim that there is no skirt that you can get to fit that rim. There's no skirt. Every skirt you get, every time you get that boat, you're going to have to have a skirt custom made for that boat. It's like designing a toaster. A beautiful piece of art toaster with a plug with one prong or six prongs or 20 prongs. It doesn't plug into anything. It's non-functioning. You have to build your own custom socket for this toaster you built. Okay, I'm going to keep it real simple, boys and gals out there designing boats. You need two sizes, an 88-inch rim and a 92-inch rim. That's it. Period. You don't need 84, 97, 99, 82, 75. You don't need any of those. You need 88 and 92. Everyone could be happy with those rims. And I will send you a tracing of the correct way to make that rim so the boat's dry. Because I'm sick of designers designing these things. I'm sick of customers calling me saying their boat leaks when their rims are turd. Bam. Period. <laughs> Bam. That was That's the rant, best rant we've ever That's had a rant on this show. Right there. <laughs> Woo! Cut it out. I like it. <laughs> I like it. No uh, reason for it. All right. What do you got? Bring the heat. Lewis. Um, I'm going to rave about Alaska Airlines, man. They uh, fly direct to D.C. from Portland. It's like only airline that does that. Uh, I was about to – yeah, I had to sit next to this like poor woman who is just so obese when I was going home last week. And – uh, like the stewardess pulled me aside, like very like discreetly, and was like, "I'm I'm really sorry. Like, there's nowhere else we can put you. Like, here's like five thousand frequent flyer miles. I got like bumped to first class on the way home. See, they will take a kayak if you show up at Alaska Airlines. They will take your kayak. They're like, oh, a kayak, seventy five dollars, done. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is so rare now. Right. It's like, yeah. 
Well, last you can year, carry on. You can carry like a moose rifle on board. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you probably carry a moose rifle on. You might want to double check on that. <laughs> no, nobody tased me or dragged me off the plane screaming. <laughs> Very pleasant. Oh, uh, that's great. That's great. I'm glad. <laughs> what was I? Oh. I'm going to rave. This one's a little off topic here, but I'm going to rave about female business leaders. Thank you. So I have had the opportunity to work with some outstanding um, female business leaders. And boys, they're just more cunning than you are. <laughs> That's all I can say. I, I will tell anybody that there'd be no IR without Kara. It'd just be... IR would be a bunch of dudes blowing stuff up, making dick jokes. That's all we would be. Sewing up sweatpants. That's right. I'd be like, look, we made a potato cannon. What do you mean we're broke? Hold my beer. Well, big props to the other female captains of industry out there. And uh, I think that's a wrap for the Hammer Factor. 22 is yeah. in the books. All right. Excellent.